If we can uh, find our seats, we're going to get started. We are continuing through the book of Mark. Uh, I'm fully anticipating a record for us on our live stream today. Uh, so, and, and, you know, I am so grateful for Stephen uh, putting that on our website and for working through a lot of the kinks and the details. It's worked out really well. I know it is utilized. Uh, for those of you who know Paul and Alyssa Kennel, um, you know, they, they can't come because of Riley. And I know that he has told me many times that they watch. So if they're watching, we love you, Paul and Alyssa. Um, I mean, that's like really cool that that's able to happen. And we are praying for them and and there are several others that are sick, and uh, technology, right? Uh, I think of technology all the time. My sister lives in Europe, and, and I think back to when Dick would have been a missionary, and uh, to get communication to you would have taken months, you know, to write a letter and have it travel overseas, and now I can uh, get on Skype or FaceTime and, and uh, see my sister and talk to her in person. It's just really amazing. We live in a very technological day and age. But um, uh, we are in Mark chapter 14. Uh, I, I feel a little extra confidence today. We played a game called Balderdash the other day, and so my vocabulary has expanded. So I might throw in a few new words for you this morning, you know. I mean, you never know when you, you need a, a heapy hoppy and you need to ride on a flannerkin. But hey, if you need to uh, know what those are, someday I'll tell you. Um, where do you go after that, right? Where do you go after that? Mark chapter 14 is where you go. Mark chapter 14, we're going to look at verses 32 through 42 this morning as we're kind of drawing a close to the end of uh, Jesus' ministry here on earth. Uh, so once you have Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42, if you would just stand with me as we read that, kind of just give preeminence to the word this morning. So starting at verse 32 of Mark chapter 14, it says, And they went into a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us go, be going to see. My betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Father, we pray that you would just speak to our hearts. That in that silence of the garden... We might see uh, the sweet fellowship of prayer. And Father, as we come before you this morning, that we would be able to take our burdens, our worries, and our cares to you. 
Father, I pray that you would just minister to us, that you would speak through your word, that we might leave here encouraged in the strength and the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Put some context on this passage. Uh, Jesus has finished the Passover celebration. We talked about that last week with his disciples. Uh, they finished by singing a hymn, it tells us, and they crossed over the Kidron Valley. It is probably sometime late after midnight. Uh, and he uh, crosses over, it tells us, to the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olivet which simply is just a, if you ever get the chance, it's an amazing place. You can see it still today. It's a hillside across from the city of Jerusalem, and it is just an olive uh, orchard. I don't know if that's the right word, an orchard, a garden is the term that's used over and over in Scripture. Um, and it says that he came to this special place, and he came here in what is probably his greatest time of need. He comes to a place which we have come to know and love called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a grove, uh, it's, a, it's a, this orchard tree thing, whatever, a garden with thousand-year-old olive trees all around, and in the middle of it is an olive press, and, and that's Gethsemane. Um, because the way it would work is that, you know, all these uh, olive trees, people would gather them. Did my mic just go out? I think it did. Are we still good? Okay. Well, I'm going to keep talking, and if I need to switch, I'll switch. Uh, so uh, the way it would work is it was kind of a neighborhood olive uh, uh, orchard tree thing. I should just get it straight. We'll call it a garden from here on out, all right, because that's what it says in the Bible. So this olive garden, which sounds so odd, <laughs> so odd. I'm going to get stuck on this, and it's not even an important point, Okay. This is my mind. It just works that way. But in the middle of it is this olive press, and olive press uh, is, is literally the meaning of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means an oil press. So in the middle, they, the neighborhood would gather their olives. They'd bring them into this press. They'd squeeze them. And in this very place uh, where olive uh, oil is produced through the pressing of olives, in this very place, our Savior is to be pressed and pressed hard upon. We're told in, uh, in here that Jesus goes with his disciples. It is a place that he would often go. It is the place where he would go when there is no other place to go when he needs to be alone with the Father. And he lays for us in doing that an incredible lesson that there is a place, our own Gethsemane, where we can go when we need to be alone with the Father. And I pray and hope that we all have that. And yet at the same time, when we read through this this morning and we look at the, the events that unfold, the words that are communicated, and we see the response from heaven, we, we, we read this, I want us to understand that while we can go to our Gethsemane, our Gethsemane will always be very different than the one that Jesus went to because of what Jesus went through. And that is a beautiful thing. It is a place that was a quiet place, a place that we're told in Luke that Jesus 
as was his custom, often went there. The disciples were very familiar with this place. In fact, John tells us in John 18 that Judas knew of the location. That's probably why he led the soldiers right there. It was a place that Jesus often went to. We're told throughout the the scriptures, throughout the gospels, that Jesus often withdrew to pray because he communicated with his father, fellowship. You know, I I know that I, I hit on this a lot, but prayer is so vital vitally crucial to your walk of faith. And when we talk about Jesus as our example, he demonstrates it, he lives it out. And here in a moment, we see the very heart of Jesus aching in agony. And what does he do? He goes to spend time in fellowship with the Father alone. It was his custom. He takes eight of them, it tells us, and he has them sit at the entrance And he tells them, sit here while I pray. And then he takes Peter, James, and John inside. And he tells them, remain here and watch. That's incredible. He pulls them in. You know, I oftentimes wonder, you know, what would the other disciples, the other eight would have thought, oh great, there goes the, the three, they get to be with Jesus. I don't know, they had been arguing all along about who was the greatest, uh, and, and, and they had actually, uh, I think it's Luke tells us, they had just been arguing that night about who was the greatest, and, and Jesus pulls these three inside, can you imagine? And, and then what he tells them is, watch what lessons they would get from watching their Savior that night. If you imagine the scene for those three, it tells us that he took Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed. The Greek there implies that it came suddenly, shockingly to Jesus, which is kind of odd to think about. But it was so troubling, he, he will tell us that, that he tells them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Sorrowful, and, 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 and the idea is that it was pressing in such a way that it was agonizing. He goes ahead of them, it tells us in Luke chapter 22 that it's about a stone's throw away. He, 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 so he has them remain, and then he goes a little bit farther, and he is totally alone. There is nobody else with him. And the text tells us, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground. The, the Greek there implies that it was imperfect. It, it was that he kept falling. And when we piece all the gospel accounts together, you get a, a big picture that he falls first to his knees, Luke tells us. And then Matthew tells us that he falls on his face. He had done the miraculous before. He had done incredible things. They had seen him walk on water. They had seen him calm storms. They had asked, who is this man that he commands the waves and the wind? Who who is he? They had seen him. They had seen him raise the dead. They had seen all these things. Can you imagine what was going on in their mind when they see him walk into the garden and say, hey, guys, stay here, remain here, and watch. And then he walks a little bit farther in front of them. Uh, and he falls to his knees, and he falls to his face. And, and, you know, you think about all that. Their hero, their savior, and he is utterly wiped out. I haven't seen my father cry a lot. But when I have seen my father cry, I can't keep it. Because my dad is my hero. And, you know, when I see him break, that is 
an unbelievable, unbearable feeling. Hebrews actually gives us insight into what they saw. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, that he cried out with loud cries and tears. And he was heard. Can you imagine seeing that? The guy that, 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 that fed 5,000, the guy that, that, that walked on water, the guy that raised Lazarus from the dead on his face, crying out, wailing. That's what they saw. The guy that they had left everything for to follow. That's what they saw. What did they hear? We're told in regards to what he prayed. And I find it interesting. So they, they, they fell asleep, right? They fall asleep three times. But, but Peter is able to rehearse the things that he observed before he fell asleep. Which is fascinating to me. I wonder what else happened while they were sleeping that maybe we don't have recorded for us because they were sleeping. But this is what they heard, what they saw. And it tells us what Jesus prayed he prayed, going a little farther, he fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, thank you for having this recorded for us. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He starts out by crying, Abba, Father. If you know anything about this, uh, this term, we've heard it maybe in a sermon before, but Abba means it's, a, it's a, a term that is used by children. It means Papa or Daddy. It's a very intimate name that a child would cry out. Children could say it because, you know, it doesn't require teeth to say it. Abba. It'd be like your little one saying Papa, Daddy. The depths of this struggle that Jesus is going through. He cries out, Daddy, a grown man, crying to his father. Can you imagine the depths of this struggle? And by the way, the depths of this struggle are far greater than what he was going to face on the cross. You have to understand his struggle. That in that moment, Jesus is being weighed upon and pressed by the sins of the world. Consider that, that Galatians tells us that him, uh, he was made a curse in that moment. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that for our sake, God made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, never experienced it, never participated in it. He was perfect, he was holy and just, and now he is being made sin. Peter tells us that he, meaning Jesus himself, bore our sins not on but in his body. On the tree. And in Isaiah 53, we're told that the Lord, the Father, has laid on him, meaning Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Him who knew no sins. If you think having a guilty conscience is bad and it weighs on you, 
Imagine having the guilt of all the sin of all time pressed upon you. That's what Jesus is experiencing. The physical beating that he is about to receive is not the hardest part of his sufferings. Never was. Sin is atoned for us through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, but the battle over sin and death was won in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the reality. That in those moments, he cried out, Abba, Father, can you help me? And notice what he says. He says, all things are possible for you. He, he acknowledges the Father's ability, and he puts in his request. Remove this cup from me. It was never that Jesus was unwilling to do it, and we're going to see it here in just a little bit. It was not a, a conflict of his will or the Father's will. He, he was just he, he was crying out. Because we can't imagine the full weight and experience of what Jesus was going through. That he was asking that the cup be removed. This cup representing the wrath of God. A wrath so strong that in Revelations it tells us that the cup of God's wrath will be made to be consumed by those who, who are in judgment and guilty against the holy God. And that cup will, will smoke for eternity. It's no wonder he didn't want to drink of it. And what is amazing to me is, can you imagine, you know, we, we, we read this text and we think of the Son, right? We think of what Jesus went through, and we are right to do that. The experience of, of having the weight of all of humanity, past, present, and future sin, laid upon one who had known no sin. And the, the agony of that. But, but it's not just that. Can we imagine the Father in that moment? Jesus even said, all things are possible for you. This is true. The Father could have done something about it at any point in time. He could have snapped his fingers, moment over. You know what? Jesus my son whom I love, which by the way, over and over again in Scripture we hear the reality. It's not just a fake thing. The father loved the son over and over again. How many times can we read where God from heaven, a voice from heaven screams out, this is my son whom I love. He loved the, the, the son so much. And, and yet in, the, in, in all of that, as, as Jesus cries out, Abba, Father, not a baby or a child, but a man crying out out he could have done something about it and yet his answer silence can you imagine as a parent hearing this when your child cries out for you if you have the means to rescue what would it take to hold you back from doing so think about that that as the father hears the cries of his son, loud cries and tears, silence. In fact, the only thing, the only response from heaven we're told in Luke is that God sends, the father sends an angel to strengthen him to take the cup. What does that say to you about the father's love for you? 
John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son. Romans 8.32, if God did not even spare his own son, how much more will he give to you? The Father's love is expressed to us through the commitment to redemption. The cup of wrath strengthened. And in that moment, and this is something I cannot wrap my mind around, in these moments, Jesus somehow experienced a vicarious punishment, a vicarious eternal punishment for the sins of all the world. Think about that. It's not that it was just a, 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 you know, a quick thing. It was the eternal wrath and suffering for all sins, for all time. Jesus vicariously experienced that. And yet he looks at that, he thinks of the cup, he asks if it can be removed, yet he declares, yet not what I will, but what you will. Thank God for Jesus' willingness to go to the cross and to drink of the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. That's what they heard as they saw him stagger to the ground and pray. In fact, we get a little more glimpse even in Luke's account where he tells us that what else they saw was that they saw him uh, uh, sweating, as it were, drops of blood. Hematidrosis. There's a fun word. It is not from Balderdash. Hematidrosis. It is the capillaries bursting under pressure from stress. That he was pressed upon so hard from the weight of sin. In fact, Luke tells us that, that he was in agony. And that Greek word literally means to wrestle as in the games of wrestling or combat. That's what Jesus was doing as he prayed. He prayed in agony. He wrestled. And I find it amazing that it tells us that he was sweating drops of blood and yet it was cold out. In John chapter 18, it tells us that they were uh, that very night warming themselves by a fire because it was cold out. And yet in that cold, Jesus is sweating. He never sweated doing any of his labors of miracles. He never sweated, it tells us, walking on water. He never sweated feeding the 5,000. It doesn't tell us that he sweated on that hot noon day when he met the woman at the well. But he sweated drops of blood in the garden. Because he was wrestling over sin. It tells us in verse 37 then that he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I find it amazing that in the moment of Jesus' greatest agony, he is thinking not of himself, but his disciples. Comes back, he wakes them up. Hey guys, you need to stay awake and pray. And, and, and let's give them, cut them a little bit of slack, okay? Because it had been a long day for them. 
It started early in the morning. They went, Peter and, and, and James and John probably were the ones that went and, and kind of initiated and set up the, the Passover. They had started in the morning doing that. It had been a long day filled with probably stress of, of the day's preparations. The Passover's a real big deal. They had been probably working around all of that. They had heard about somebody that was going to betray Jesus, one of them. Can you imagine how that terror must have filled their mind? They had been told by Jesus himself that this very night they're all going to run away from him and and Jesus has been telling them about how uh, he was going to be crucified how he was going to die and 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 all the things that have been going on that had been weighing heavily on them not to mention the incredible lessons that they learned that we can read about from John chapter 13 through 17 about uh, Jesus teaching about the vine and the branches and, and the, the upper room uh, teachings that went on. Everything had been going on. Then they went through the actual Passover and they had been eating from sunset till about midnight. That's about five hours. And they probably had full bellies. And I don't know about you, but when I've eaten a lot, I get a little sleepy. It is after midnight. Jesus comes to him and he says, Peter, are you sleeping? You couldn't stay up for one hour in my time of need. I find it interesting that he addresses Peter. Remember, Peter, just moments before this, is the one who was bragging, Jesus, you can count on me. The other guys, they're going to fall away. They're going to they're walk away from you, but not me. You can count on me, Jesus. I will be there for you. And what does Peter do? He falls asleep, not once, not twice, but three times. And it is interesting that Jesus refers to him as Simon. He is the first, I'm sorry, the second time he's referred to him, and it's the first time since chapter 1 he goes back to his old name. Did that sting? The fact that Peter, who is probably the one telling Mark what to write down in the recording of this, I'm sure he's remembering this and, and giving details of things that are seared into his brain as he remembered weeping over his betrayal of Jesus. In fact, Peter tells Mark in this very text, he said uh, in, in verse 39, and again he went away and prayed the same words, and again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Can you imagine Jesus coming back the third time? Um, what they had seen was this, this, their, their Messiah, their Savior, falling apart in front of them, uh, wailing and asking for the Father uh, to, to help and in and, and, and obviously seeing the distress in his face and in his body and they fall asleep three times and the third time he comes back can you imagine the disciples being like yeah we didn't know what to do the embarrassment and you know it's bad when peter says they that they didn't even know what to say because if peter ain't got nothing to say there ain't nothing to say three times and it is amazing that in the midst of all this, Jesus is, like I said, his concern to the disciples. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We're going to come back to that. But again, going back to Jesus, can you imagine the loneliness in that moment? No response from the Father. 
To the point that when he is dying on the cross, some of his last words are Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which simply translated means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, Dad? Here he cries out, Father, I know you're able to do this. No answer. No response from the Father. We have never, never experienced that. Nor will we ever. The unreliability of his closest friends that as he pulls the three into the garden, he says, guys, stay here with me. Watch. And what do they do each time? Fall asleep. Fall asleep. Fall asleep. You imagine the loneliness of Jesus in that very night that, that no response from the Father, unreliability from his closest friends, and betrayal at the hand of a brother. One that he had spent three years with, one that he loved, one that he had hours before washed his feet was now to betray him. Let that sink in. This is what Jesus experienced the night before he was crucified. It tells us then, and again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? And we get a bunch of choppy statements now. He says, It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. What Jesus is saying here is on the third time he has come back and the matter has been settled. It's concluded. It's settled. The battle has literally been won. He's going to the cross. More than he fears the cup, he loves the hand that gives it to him. And he's resolved. Tells his guys, hey, and it's not, sometimes you can read, depending on your translation, it might sound kind of like a rebuke. It, the, the original language doesn't imply that it's a rebuke. And we don't know how long from the moment he comes back till the, the time that Judas appears. He just tells him, guys, rest. Rest. You're going to need it. Again, concerned with his, his disciples. Rest. And then he says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. What a, what a moment, what a, what a time to, to consider. And can you imagine being one of those three that were there, uh, that, that witnessed this and, and the, the agony to see and to not fully comprehend, but yet everything is starting to unfold before them. And, and so how do we take this and apply it to our lives? There's four things I want us to think through. The first is what we already looked at, which is when Jesus comes back, he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. If we want to escape temptation, because we will all face it, if we want to escape temptation, it is not enough to just watch for it. It's not enough to just watch, but we must also be praying Jesus says, watch and pray. Why? Why is that so important? Because if we aren't, first of all, watching, it will creep in unawares and we will fall prey to sin and temptation. If you're not on your guard, 
If we fall asleep, figuratively or in reality, it will creep upon us and it will take us. It is not enough, though, just to watch. If we are trying to do it in our own strength, we will also fail. Because that's the reality. Prayer is stating, I am dependent on the Father. I am dependent on Jesus to help me. And He is the only one who can give you aid. We read in in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us, uh, Be on guard, lest anyone thinks that he is able to stand, he will fall. And then he goes on, he says, But no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And if you are tempted... Guess what? Jesus knows and he is able to help you. And so Jesus looks at his disciples. He says, watch and pray. Your spirit is willing. I know. Paul said, I, that which I want to do, I desire to do, but I don't do it. Why? Because the flesh is weak. How many times have we uh, in our life said, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to change this part of my life, and I will not do that anymore. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to resolve not to do it. There's a reason why resolutions don't last, because the flesh is weak. And Jesus understands that, so he looks at his disciples, knowing full well what is right ahead of them, that they are going to all fall prey to a snare, a trap that we looked at last week. And they're all going to fall away when the shepherd has been struck. And so he says, watch and pray. And it is vital that we understand that if we are trying to accomplish our resolutions, our resolves to do better in our own strength, we will always fail. And that is why it is so vitally essential that we are praying. Because prayer says, I can't do it. I need Jesus. And we have the ultimate example here, that Jesus, the Son of God, went and spent time in prayer before he was to go to the cross because he needed the Father to help strengthen his resolve. Second, our strength is not in how well we battle, but in how well we surrender. Jesus never sweated doing the miraculous or in public ministry, but only in private surrender to the will of the Father in Gethsemane. Because the surrender of the will is so much harder than the physical labors and toils of ministry. We can do ministry in our own strength. We can do all kinds of things in our own strength. It won't be successful necessarily, but to surrender your will, we are... People that are autonomous, that desire our own control. Look at a child for two seconds and you'll realize that when you try to help them tie their shoe, what do they do? They smack your hand away. They say, I will do it myself. When, when, you, when you are working through, uh, if you come and try and help me with some job that I am working on, I am so stubborn, I, will, I would rather try and break my back pushing something than ask for help because I'm stubborn. I don't want to ask for help. I don't want to be dependent. Because I am autonomous and I also want to rule myself. I don't want to acknowledge that I need something else. And here's the reality. The surrender of the will says, I need help. And this is the beauty of the gospel. 
And it's also the hardest part of the gospel. The gospel is that, that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we who, who all have, have lived and breathed have fallen short by, by violating God's holy and perfect law. We have, have sinned and have inherited an, an, a nature that, that cries out, I will do what I want and I will not be subject to another. And the beauty of the gospel is that we have tried and tried and tried and have failed and failed and failed in the flesh to try and resolve a broken relationship. And Jesus has come and said, I will make all things new. And he has. And he wrestled in the garden over all sin for all time. And what a beautiful picture we can find over and over in the Gospels and over and over again in the writings of John when he says that Christ is the propitiation for the sins of not just us, but the sins of the whole world. And the Gospel declares that if we would but surrender to that will and recognize that I need Jesus as Savior, I can have eternal life. Our strength is not in how well we battle, but in how completely we surrender. Third, because of Jesus, we can come when we feel alone and in despair to our own Gethsemane, but it will not look like the one Jesus went to because of what Jesus did for us. The Father has opened a new and living way, we're told in Hebrews chapter 10, through His body, meaning Jesus, where we can enter into the Holy of Holies, where we can approach His throne of grace, and in our time of need, we find mercy and grace to help us. Maybe you sit here today and you say, you don't understand the depths and the despair that I am facing in life. And maybe I don't. But Jesus does. And Paul longed, we're told in Philippians, he longed to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Why? Because there's no one who understands your sufferings more than Jesus. And we can go to the Father and we can cry out and we can know with confidence that He will always hear us. That, that original language in Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us that we can go to His throne and the, the language means that we can assault it. We can go with confidence and we can enter in and we can find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. There have been many times in my life when I have cried out and I have not understood the depths of that. Because of what I was going through. I've seen family members pass away. And you cry out. And you, you ask God. And you plead. And in those moments, you may not get the answer you expect. But you will find fellowship with the Father. And the beautiful thing in all of this is that because Jesus went through this, not only is our response from the Father very different than the response that Jesus got, but we also find that Jesus goes on our behalf. What a beautiful thing as we read this morning in Romans chapter 8, that we have been given a spirit by which we can cry out, Abba, Father. And guess what? We're told not only that we can do that, but we are told that Jesus is interceding on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, you will never be alone. If we get nothing out of this text but this very 
moment of, of hope and security. We can come to a place where we can say, I can go and be alone with God and I am never alone. He is always there with me. And the last thing I want us to consider from this passage is this. While we can go to Him and we can request, remove this cup from me, God will not always remove the trial from your life. But He will always give you the strength to press through it. He will always give us the strength to face it. What a beautiful picture. I can imagine the scene where Jesus is crying out, Father, Father, remove this cup and heaven opens and the angel comes and I can just imagine the words of that angel. You can do it. You can face this. The Father loves you. He was strengthened. And He goes to the cross. And it's at that moment it tells us that He is resolved. It is enough. The hour has come. The Son is betrayed. It has happened. And it is done. worship team is going to come up. And I don't know where you're at in life. I don't know what the struggles you might be facing. But you can understand with confidence that we have a place that we can go. We can go to the Father and we can be received by Him. And He will hear us. He will answer us. And He will always do so. And God will strengthen us to get through whatever it might be. But we have to go to Him in prayer. We can't just sit here and say, you know what, I will face this trial on my own and I will strengthen myself and I will push through and I will resolve to, to, to fix whatever the issue is. No, no, we have to go to Him in prayer. We have to submit and say, you know what, it is not my will, but the Father's. And brothers and sisters, I want us to leave here today to know with confidence and certainty that what Jesus did in the garden was to take your sins and to put upon himself and to resolve to take those sins to the cross so that you wouldn't have to. And we can leave here with joy and rejoicing that our sins are forever cleansed because of what Jesus did in that dark and lonely place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you We thank you that we have one who knows our sufferings. We thank you that we have one who loves us so much that when he heard his son crying out, he was not swayed to deviate from the course of redemption. But he was resolved because of a love for us that was so strong. That he said, I will take the wrath and the punishment and I will redeem people. And Father, we thank you. We rejoice in that. We, we walk from here with joy and shouts of proclamation that we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb because of a love of a Father. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today that does not understand the depths of that, that today would be a day where they would humbly present themselves to a Father who loves them so much, who declares, if you confess, if you would just but confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that believe that God raised Him from the dead as my only hope of salvation, 
that today could be a day of salvation. A day where you will never let us be put to shame. We thank you, Jesus. We ask this in your precious and holy name. Amen.